Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. This week's guest is one of the world's most acclaimed musicians, recording artists and music composers for film and television. Originally from New York City, Mark Isham studied piano and violin, but the trumpet captured his imagination and became his signature instrument. By the age of 15, he was playing in jazz clubs while performing with Oakland and San Francisco symphonies. He ultimately formed his own jazz band, Group 87, who made two records, one for Columbia and one for EMI, but they ultimately disbanded. Mark simultaneously toured the world as a horn player with the likes of Van Morrison and Joni Mitchell. Meanwhile, in the early 80s, he began experimenting with electronic music and quickly gained notoriety for his work in the new age genre. The self-titled Mark Isham album won a Grammy Award and Grammy nominations followed for the albums Castalia and Tibet. Mark's collaborated with the likes of Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock. His Blue Sun album and Miles Remembered, the Silent Way Project, are regarded with awe in the jazz world. And the ARIA Award-nominated Bittersweet album of jazz standards with my wife Kate Sobrano is obviously close to my heart. Mark's signature trumpet sound is heard on albums of music icons including Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Ziggy Marley, Joni Mitchell, The Rolling Stones, Chris Isaac and Van Morrison. As a film composer, Mark has scored films for the most acclaimed directors in the business, Robert Altman, Robert Redford, Jodie Foster, Sidney Lumet, Frank Darabont, Scott Hicks, Brian De Palma, John Ridley, Gavin O'Connor and dozens more, most of them returning again and again for Mark's music. Highlights include scoring the Oscar-winning movies Crash, A River Runs Through It, Warrior and Judas and the Black Messiah, along with the Golden Globe-winning films Bobby and the Black Dahlia. Recent television highlights include scoring all eight seasons of Once Upon a Time, American Crime, Little Fires Everywhere, which garnered his sixth Emmy nomination, current hits The Godfather of Harlem and HBO's Victorian sci-fi series The Nevers. Prolific doesn't even begin to describe Mark's creative output. Over 400 movies and television series scored, $4 billion box office gross of movies scored, created over 200 albums, over 200 nominations and 57 major awards. Mark Isham's collective contributions were recognised by his peers when he was awarded the Henry Mancini Career Achievement Award for musical excellence. Classically trained pioneer of electronic music, one of the jazz greats, Combine this with his willingness to create new musical worlds, working in virtually any medium or genre, well, it's kind of like the perfect alchemy for a film and TV music composer. And I guess to top it all off, he's an absolute gentleman. As you can probably tell, this is a kind of bucket list guest for me, an insight into the mind and process of a musical genius. And we get to play some of his music. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Mark Isham. Good morning. 
Good morning, Mr. Rogers. How are you? I'm very well. I recognize that studio. Looking good there. Looking very good, actually. That's one of the advantages of the COVID is that uh, <laughs> I could spend a lot of time cleaning and reorganizing, which, uh, which was done. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were well set up for what's transpired over the last year, weren't you? Yes, I'm a consistent worker from home. So to be honest with you, right, for my own personal production, not a lot changed. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's being ahead of the curve, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just lucky. My son is, is in the same profession as your wife. Boy, they were hit hard. I can tell you that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Hey, um, I've been checking out, I mean, I've seen a lot of your stuff over the years and I've known of, you know, many of the high profile film and TV projects, but God, just checking out the list of credits, it's looking increasingly like the best way to win an Academy Award or an Emmy Award is have you composing the music. Uh, well, thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have been invited on some very high profile and, and most importantly, very quality projects, things that, that really do have a story to tell and, and tell it in a, in a good, intriguing and, and a smart way and uh, one that invites the audience to really, to really enjoy the, the storytelling. So it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet, mate. I'd like to start talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. Just won, I think, a couple of Academy Awards, didn't it? Was it? It one did. Or two? Yeah, I think it won uh, for best song. I know that, and and yeah, for best uh, actor. Yeah, Daniel yeah, Kaluuya. Yeah, it it's a, an incredibly powerful film, a heartbreaking film, but I guess reminds us as to the strength of the human spirit, and um, hopefully we can look at it and learn a few lessons. The, uh, the thing about it sort of amazed me, particularly looking at it from a viewpoint of, of your work on it, is from the opening bars at the start of the film, I knew I was in for a very powerful and important film. In fact, I'd like to play a few pieces of music from some of your work today, and I'd like to start by playing the inflated tear, the car, the club, that piece of music. If you could just talk us through that. It's obviously a very important piece. Uh, this theme opened the film. There's so many choices you can make for how you score a film, but um, how did you lock into that approach? And then we'll play it after you've told us about it. All right. Well, Shaka King is the, the director of the film, and he developed the script along with a couple of other writers, the Lucas Brothers. And uh, even before the script was finalized, he was pitching this film around to various different studios and various different producers, he had this piece of music by Rassan Roland Kirk called The Inflated Tear. And it's a fascinating piece in that it, for those of you who don't know, Rassan Roland Kirk was a saxophone player who was very strong and powerful in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, I think. Um, and he was blind, and that must have driven him just to these extraordinary explorations of what one could do as a jazz artist. And one of the things he explored was how many instruments can I play at a single time? And he got it so he could play three saxophones at once. This piece, The Inflated Tear, starts off with a trio that is him all by himself. And it's almost like a fanfare. The rest of the piece goes on with more of a traditional rhythm section and band. But Shaka was just mesmerized by this fanfare-like opening to this piece. And he would play this as part of his pitch. This piece has been attached to this film since before the script was finished. So when it came time for Craig and I to start talking to Shaka about the music, Shaka said this to us. He said, this is part of our film here. <laughs> so 
as hard as I as Craig and I tried to write things that would dissuade him from <laughs> using our original compositions. And he was very gracious, and there's a lot of original compositions in the score as well. But this theme does have a central place in the score, and it's uh, the original is by Rassan. Now, the film starts with an orchestral version of it that I did, because I decided at one point, well, Shaka is in love with this thing so much, and it is such a strong statement. Let's see in how many different worlds this theme can live. So I put it into a, a chamber orchestra setting, and that's the way the film actually opens. But the cue you refer to is then when we cut to present time, because the first part of the film is flashbacks and sort of a history of how do we get to this point in history. We cut to present time with a car <laughs> in front of a club, <laughs> and this fanfare just starts, the original of Rassan playing this. Now, the estate of Rassan was very gracious to allow the license of this to be in the film. But something happened when it came time to the record, and they wouldn't allow the actual Rassan recording to appear on a record, perhaps because that was Rassan's world, was making records, and they wanted Rassan's version only to be living in the record world. Because we, we made some adjustments to it, obviously, to fit the film and make it really tell the story precisely. Um, so Craig Harris, my collaborator on this, um, put together an ensemble and recreated the Rasan version for this opening track that you've chosen to play. Wow. Okay. Here it is. <laughs> me away every time I hear it. Well, it's, it's such a strong piece of music. And um, now the didgeridoo, you might ask. <laughs> yeah, Craig, it turns out, is not only a tremendous trombone player, and his, you know, he's a vast pedigree of playing trombone on all sorts of records from many decades, starting with Sun Ra all the, all the way up into his own records and lots of wonderful recordings. He also plays didgeridoo. And so for this particular version, he, we experimented and hidden in a few other places in the film is some didgeridoo. And so he said, for this special version for the album, I'm going to put a, a didgeridoo track on this. I loved it. Hey, um, tell me when you come across a film like this and you go, okay, here's the antagonist, here's the protagonist, here's the, the main theme, here's the subtext, here's this, here's that. Do you have any kind of uh, process that you're aware of where you break it down like that? Or do you just kind of, 
you read the script, you get a brief from the director, you might get references and things, and it just sort of percolates through and maybe you get the offline, you get the rough cut and you just start stabbing away at a keyboard or on your trumpet or something and find what fits the picture. Like what is your general process, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Not, not at all. And, and actually, quite frankly, it's all of the above. I mean, everything you mentioned comes into play at one point or another. Uh, we have meetings with the director. We, we talk very seriously and very intellectually about the structure. And, and, you know, when Ed comes on the screen, maybe there should be a theme for him. And, and how does this Rassan piece work? And what does it say when it comes in? Where is it used? But at the end of the day, to be honest with you, you just have to start putting the music against the picture. You can sit for hours and discuss the intellectual reasons for doing things, but it's not until you actually play the music against a scene that you go, eh, I thought it was good. And you try it, you know, the, the, let's say, I mean, to be dramatic, you say that's the, the love scene, and you say, well, let's try it when, he, when he's committing suicide. You play it over there, and it's, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard, which is the last thing you would have intellectually thought. You know, the, the, the happy accidents, I think, because music is such a subjective language and no two people react exactly the same to any piece of music. So it's really a bit mystical sometimes how music really fits into a scene in a film. You have dialogue, you have picture, you have sound effects, you have, you know, if you're working with songs, you have poetry. I mean, there's all these art forms all intermingling and sometimes to predict is sometimes very tough. You just have to do it. You just have to roll up your sleeves and, and, and get in there. Yeah, that makes total sense. Nothing really sets the tone like music and sound, does it? No, it's, it's I think, the, the. I mean, if you've ever watched certain big movie scenes without the music, it's quite an experience. <laughs> I don't think you realize what music brings to, to a lot of films. There's several things you can see online where avid music folk are more than willing to show you how <laughs> very special <laughs> scenes just don't work unless you put the music in. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sobering as a director, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> hey, look, your story's incredible because, I mean, your parents played in orchestras. I think your mother played the violin. I uh, can't remember what your dad did. What did your dad do? My dad was an amateur violist, but he was his uh, profession was a college professor, and he taught... Uh, all the way from basic history, all the way up through some very esoteric philosophy courses. And he loved music, and he would teach the philosophy of art and the philosophy of music. Right. So you grew up around orchestras, and, you know, you, you learnt violin, you learnt piano, you, you learnt trumpet. Trumpet clearly was the instrument that you gravitated to most. And then you became a jazz muso. So could you Talk us through sort of that transition at that time, and it's sort of leading me up to how you then became a pioneer of electronic music, which kind of has served you so well for composing films and what I call your kind of sound design kind of approach to so much of what you do in film scores. Yes, you've got the chops to play the traditional themes and go that whole route, but combine that with your ability in the electronic world and the sound design world, it makes for a really unique combination and it seems to give you the skill set to go anywhere in any kind of film and any kind of music, hence why you're so busy because you fit into <laughs> almost every project. So. I, I doubt you had some grand plan, you know, 40 years ago as to where electronic music was going to go. So I'd just love an insight into how you came from being, you know, basically playing a horn in seedy jazz clubs in New York to becoming <laughs> probably the most prolific film and TV composer on the planet. Uh, 
Well, I started off as a classical musician, actually. My, my mother, you know, stuck the violin in my hand, and then I picked up the trumpet as, as the biggest revolt I could think of, you know, the loudest, most abrasive <laughs> compared to the violin. And pretty soon she, she saw that trumpet was my love, and, and, and it was no stopping me. So I was in high school, and, I, and I, um, we moved. So a kid in those days, when they move, you know, they, they turn on their radio and have to find new radio stations to listen to. And I came across a jazz station, and it just changed my world. I, my parents were both classical musicians, and I had never even known that something in jazz existed. And it, hmm. was, it was a completely mind-opening and, and life-opening, and, and I devoted my life to it ever since, really. <laughs> and then a number of years later, um, my father, who taught at the university, came home with this album. And he said, you know, I just had lunch with the head of the music department, and he thrust this album in my hand and said, this is the future of music. You should know about this. And my father had sort of read the back cover and in confusion and handed it to me and said, well, maybe you're the one you should know about this. And it turned out to be this seminal recording called Silver Apples of the Moon, which was one of the very first uh, recordings made on a Buchla synthesizer out of Mills College by one of the pioneers of electronic music, Morton Sabotnik, working with Don Buchla. So before I was 20, I had these sort of, I was sort of hooked into these three worlds. I was classically trained, but with a passion for jazz and rapidly absorbing everything I could learn about jazz. And now I had this inkling of what the other future of music might be, this thing called electronic music. And I really just spent the next decade learning everything I could about all three of them because I was just thirsty, voraciously thirsty to, to know about all of this stuff. Wow. Tell us about making a living as a jazz muso. Um, I think you'd moved over the West Coast from New York. Tell us about that time. It must have been pretty heady times, a lot of drugs, <laughs> a lot of partying, a lot of good times, I imagine. A lot of guys didn't make it out the other side, particularly living in San Francisco. How did you survive that whole trip? And, you know, you traveled the world, you played with the greatest musicians and jazz musicians on the planet. Uh, give us an insight into that time. Well, it was. It was a wild time. But, you know, it was interesting along the way. I mean, I, I met certain people who showed me that survival was going to be turning your back to a certain degree on just the party life. You know, I went. I did a stint with Horace Silver, the very famous band leader and, and really creator of a whole genre of music. And I walked home from the club one night with Horace and just was talking to him. It turns out he doesn't drink at all, doesn't do any drugs at all, doesn't eat any fried foods or fatty foods. I mean, he was a real, very health conscious, very clean living. And he'd been on the road for like 50 years and, and was doing great. His health was great. And you, you ha see a few examples like that and you realize, you know, if I really want some longevity in this business, <laughs> I've got to start behaving myself and find a balance, you know, a balance of what... Uh, of the fun and and that really playing music straight and with a clear mind is actually a lot more fun at the end of the day <laughs> can you share some of the i guess favorite gigs or you know some of the greats you played with and a few little uh stories well in the jazz world i mean horace that was a that was a very seminal working experience for me david lehman the saxophone player moved out from um New York with his pal Pee Wee Ellis, who was also a saxophone player, and they had a, a boathouse in Sausalito, and I lived not too far. And I heard that they had moved out and contacted Liebman, and we started playing together, and pretty soon he formed a quartet, of which I was a member, and we did some recording. We never actually went on the road, but we toured a lot just you know by car in the, in the local area. 
Uh, but he is a tremendous player and a tremendous teacher, and I learned a tremendous amount from him in that period. But it also introduced me to Pee Wee Ellis, who was a James Brown saxophone player. It was Maceo and Pee Wee, were the two saxophone players. And Pee Wee wrote uh, Mother Popcorn and a lot of those instrumental hits for James. And so these two are, are hysterical, the odd couple, you know, living together. Dave, the Jewish intellectual modern jazz guy, and Pee Wee, the the absolutely funk master. <laughs> um, and I ended up in bands with both of them. I ended up in a band getting Pee Wee hired with the Van Morrison band, for whom I was working on and off at that time. And Pee Wee and I became Van's horn section and toured all over the world for a long, long time with Van. There were some great experiences and some great music because Van is one of those just unique, original, genius artists that has really shaped a whole corner of Western music. And uh, so to, to spend time, well, at least a decade with him was quite an experience. What else? Uh, I did some recording with Charles Lloyd, who is still one of my all-time favorites. Um, I ended up working with Tony Williams for a little bit and with uh, Herbie Hancock, so almost worked with that entire Miles Davis band. Because, <laughs> I, yeah, I ended up doing some work with Wayne Shorter. So, yeah, it's, it's been fun. I've, I've been very, very fortunate and to get into the circles with some really extraordinary players. Wow, amazing. Mate, you formed your own band and uh, scraped some money together to, to make a record. Can you, <laughs> can you tell us about <laughs> Project? <laughs> Not every project's a hit, is it? No, no. This the, and this goes back quite a ways. This is when uh, jazz was still fairly successful, and uh, I was enamored by Weather Report. I was watching Weather Report, you know, play five thousand, six thousand seat arenas and selling out, you know, two nights. And and Miles was starting to do that. And and I said, well, I'm going to be the trumpet player who does something like Weather Report. And uh, I formed a band called Group Eighty Seven. I had some really tremendous players in it, and we got signed to Columbia along with. Miles Davis and Weather Report, and we made one record, and then the music business did one of its huge hiccups, as it's liable to do from time to time, <laughs> and all the majors get scared and freaked out, and they drop any artist that isn't making them scats of money, and, and we fell victim to that. And that band scuffled along for a while, but it, it never actually was a, a financial or, or popular success. But it was a great learning experience of how to run a band, how to get record deals, you know, we did the first one completely wrong and <laughs> made every mistake a young band could make. But um, it was good, a good, good learning ground. <laughs> good stuff. So I guess soon after, I'm not sure how soon after, you embraced electronic music and you did find huge success. Can you share us uh, how that came together? Yeah, it was, it was interesting that my successor as recording artist came through a label that was known for small acoustic records, uh, the, this new age phenomena that was growing in the 80s, spearheaded by a, a solo piano player, George Winston. But it put this record label on the map. They're selling millions and millions of records. And so they're expanding, and my music is brought to their attention. And they say, look, as long as there's no jazz on it, <laughs> we'd love you to make a record. And there were artists such as Tomita and Jean-Michel Jarre who had shown that there was electronic music that could generate an audience. In fact, Jean-Michel Jarre is still one of the most popular European artists of all time. And so I was aware of that genre. I said, well, I can work myself sort of into that world. And so my first Wyndham Hill records were designed along those lines. And yes, 
with that sort of marketing, I did. I started to have some success and started touring the world and the States and putting little groups together to support the record. And it was a revelation to me. But again, educational experience, learning that it isn't just enough to have great music. You also have to know where that marketplace for that music is and how to approach that marketplace and how to get it known in that marketplace and then tell that marketplace that it exists and get it into their hands. Yeah, it makes sense whether you, you know, film, TV, music, pretty well any business. Exactly. There's quite a lot of talented people out there. It's the uh, <laughs> it's the, the marketing and getting it into the hands and ears of people that is uh, often the difference, isn't it? Well, it is the music business, you know. It's, it's one thing to sit in your room and make music, but if you say, I'm in the music business, then there's a whole other, well, it's almost a technology. It's just, it's, there's just like any other area of life. You have to know the rules and you have to know what works and what doesn't work and why it works and when to do what. And, and that, I think, has been the biggest and longest lessons that it's taken me to learn. You know, the music was actually not that hard in comparison. <laughs> I, I have similar conversations with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, those albums were pretty successful. I think you won a couple of Grammy Awards, didn't you? I did, yeah. I got uh, three or four Grammy nominations and eventually won one. So, yeah, they, they were. I, I did two or three for Wyndham Hill, then two for Virgin. And, yeah, I was doing quite well in that genre for quite a while. Humbly spoken. <laughs> um, so how the hell did you end up scoring film and TV from having made these new age <laughs> electronic albums? Who took the punt and gave you your first gig? They sort of started simultaneously, although the record took off sooner. But one of the pieces that I was making to try and get a record deal fell in the hands of a film director. And he said, well, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Who made that? <laughs> and uh, so he offered me a demo period to, to try and write for his film for over a weekend. And he came back on Monday and listened to what I'd written and hired me to write his film, which is still a bit of a shock because that very seldom happens. I think I had enough you know, ability and stature as a recording artist at that time to sort of stand on, at least to get my foot in the door. And then I delivered exactly what this particular director wanted. And he was frustrated because he'd already had two different composers write things that he didn't want. <laughs> and so he heard in me the spirit and the sound of what he wanted. And he didn't care that I didn't have the experience. He, he just knew that he could coach me through the process and get out of me what he wanted which he had to. It took us four months, which is pretty long for a film scoring project. And again, learning, 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 learning every day, the hands of somebody who was willing to teach me. And I have to mention his name because I owe him such a, a debt. It's Carol Ballard, and he's just a fabulous American film director. Did The Black Stallion, Never Cry Wolf, Fly Away Home. And it was really he that gave me that shot. And that sort of kicked it off. It was slow starting because I, I finished that film and I went back to Europe to tour with Van Morrison. That so was the paying gig. And then I came back to America and realized, because I realized, well, I have a film opening and I have a record being released. Maybe I should be in the country that <laughs> they're being released in. And the record took off and I got signed to um, CAA as a film composer. And so the two careers started almost simultaneously. Wow. Thanks. Did you do any kind of formal training on the film scoring scene or you literally just took everything you knew and learned on the job with this guy mentoring you? 
Yeah, it was pretty much learn on the job. I had never taken a class and still to this date have never taken a class in film scoring. But I just knew that here was an opportunity. I, I knew these things just don't happen every day. So I, I applied myself. It was seven days a week, you know, 14-hour days. Just just do everything you possibly can to get it as good as you possibly can to the, the way that this guy wants it and better. You know, just try to even do better than what he expects of you. And it worked. And it worked. I came out the other end with a pretty decent idea. And it was after that that I sat myself down and said, because I had an agent now. Agents signed me based on the success of that film. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, if I get hired by another film, they're going to think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I didn't study film composition, but I went around and, and just did sort of a self-taught brush up on the art of composition. I took about four or five pieces of music that I admired tremendously and I analyzed them. I learned them all on the piano. I bought the scores and I just sort of sketched out in my mind, well, how do they create these effects? For instance, in Mahler's Third Symphony, there's a passage which is always just broken my heart, I mean, emotionally. And so I analyzed it and said, well, if it breaks my heart, there's a good chance there's something in that music and the way that music is constructed that could break other people's hearts. And if it breaks my heart, it's something close and meaningful to me, so I should know technically what that is. And I did that with about four or five pieces of music that had different emotional responses to them. And I came out of that self-schooled, <laughs> knowing a lot, quite a bit more and, and just a little more confident in my ability to, well, in a couple of days I can probably write a piece that's definitely sad and going to break your heart. Or I can write a piece that's triumphant, the triumph of the will. Or what are the various things that you have to do as a film composer? There are various stories you have to tell. There's not that many, you know. So if you learn the fundamental language of these emotions in music, there's a certain level of confidence you can build. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's smart. I guess that's approaching a subject as a professional, isn't it? Well, I realized I was being offered the opportunity to really become a professional. You know, I'd done a professional job on one film and gotten by with a person who was willing to mentor me through it. But that wasn't going to happen <laughs> after that. I was going to have to bring it to the table myself, and so I'd better get it together. How about the TV work, mate? How long till you started getting offered TV work? It was a few years, and then my agent said, you know, there's some prestigious new television shows coming up. They would love a theme. And in those days, I wrote themes for a number of shows. And in fact, I, I think I have a couple of Emmy nominations for them. Then I sort of fell off of television for a while. And then a woman, a dear friend of mine who runs the ABC Productions, the music side of ABC Productions, said, look, we've got some really great television coming up. I'd like to coax you back into television. And I took her up on it, and that was about 10 years ago, and I've been back in television ever since. And of course, now television is where arguably some of the best stories are being told by some of the best talent in the, in the whole business. And there's so much product being made and developed and, and so many interesting things going on. And I took a different approach. I didn't just write the themes. I, I decided I'm going to take a cinematic approach and I'm going to offer my services to the whole show and design and build an entire sound for the show. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, I, I was amazed at how many major TV series over the last decade you had your name on. I wasn't aware. Once Upon a Time has been a huge success. And I don't know, I think there's a couple of hundred eps of that, isn't there? And it's really quality work. Uh, seven years, seven times 23, whatever that number is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. And then um, probably one of my favourite shows of the last year is The uh, Godfather of Harlem. Wow. 
Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful show. I mean, obviously, Forrest Whitaker is one of the finest actors of our time and, and an executive producer. And Chris Brancato, who's the one of the developers and now the head showrunner and writer, he's, he's just so talented. So I concur. I love the show, and it's an honor to be working on it. Because we, you know, this, the gentleman making the songs is Swizz Beats, so it just doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, well worth checking out. Maiden, I think, well, one of the most recent shows you've been working on, which has just been released, I think, last month in Australia, called The Nevers. It's out of HBO and, wow, I mean, it's a massive budget. It's, a, I guess you'd say, the fantasy genre, but it's incredible. I watched the opening app just last week when you told me you'd done the music. The music's fantastic, obviously a more, more traditional orchestral score. I'd like to play one of the tracks, the opening track. Can you talk us through that before I play it? Yes, this is one of my sort of favorite genres. It's like Once Upon a Time, but on steroids, <laughs> um, with even just more, you know, willing to open up. It's not fairytale land. It's science fiction land and, and, and fantasy land and just the whole. It's Joss Whedon. And he's just got an immense imagination, and it's it's just written beautifully and superbly, and it's it's like mini films. Each one of these episodes, it it really is. And I was just immediately drawn to it, and and really pitched heavily to be hired, <laughs> and fortunately was hired. And um, we finished the first six episodes, which, as you say, are in the process of being released over these months here. And uh, there's a season 1B, which is now being written and will be coming out in the fall. And yes, I think because starting with Joss, I mean, most of these things on this show start with Joss. He just has a passion for beautiful, traditional film music. I mean, John Williams is his ultimate hero. And, and completely with his blessing, we wanted a little more modern approach than John. And so I would sort of humbly offer that, that I've tried to be respectful of that of the big epic score, but doing it a little more modern way. And uh, very great support from HBO. We have an orchestra, we have really world-class soloists. We have a gentleman who's the principal cellist in the, in the London Philharmonic is solo cello. And then the solo violin actually <laughs> is, is a friend of mine from a whole nother world. E equally as fantastic, but he, he and I used to tour together playing rock and roll. <laughs> He's the violinist, so it. I love it. It's it's one of the most fun projects I've done. Let's have a listen.
Wow, goosebumps that track, mate. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a it's a fascinating opening scene because uh, there's no dialogue. Basically, you've just heard the entire opening scene. Now there is some really breathtaking, stunning imagery that goes with this, and you're introduced visually to most of the main characters. But you have no idea what they're doing, why they're doing it, what they're reacting to things, but you don't know why. And it's just, it's a mesmerizing introduction. And uh, that does pay off. You, you do learn. <laughs> it, oh, it absolutely is. I mean, it must be a dream brief as a composer. It's like this massive series, <laughs> the, the whole setup opening, and it's just the music front and center. <laughs> It is, it is a dream project, and especially this first episode, because it, it actually continues another four minutes past that. Not a flashback, more in the present time of the story. But again, another three or four minutes of just pure music. and So I couldn't have been happier. <laughs> <laughs> when we were living in LA, we used to come over to your place and, I don't know, have lunch, and you collaborated with Kate, my wife, on quite a few different projects. You guys did gigs. We had a great time and I watched you at work at times. But do you mind sharing us your process of like what a day looks like for you? You've, I know you've got your, your couple of little sort of armchairs where your horns are in this little room <laughs> that looks out over the, over the, the backyard um, or the ranch, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And then you've got your studio, you've got your keyboard, you've got your piano inside the house where sometimes you write in there. So... I don't know. I'm guessing maybe you do the traditional stuff on the piano in the house, the big triumphant, you know, sporting war films. You know, you're on the <laughs> horn looking out at the yonder. Um, talk us through how you decide where you go and what a day looks like. Well, my wife was was very clever when we when we met. Um, she saw the lifestyle I had and said, "All right, I have. You've asked me to marry you. I've said yes. All right. So the next thing is we we have to." <laughs> Find a house where you can work because I've seen the hours that you work and we have to put you on the property or else you will never even know who your children are. So we found this lovely property where, as you say, we have a studio and we have a, a beautiful yard, garden, and we have a main house. And yes, I decided to keep the acoustic piano in the house. I, I just, I love the instrument. I want it part of the family. I want it part of the warmth of the home. I don't want it isolated over here and only used professionally. I want uh, people to come and play for us and, and keep it part of the social fabric of our home. Consequently, you are totally right. If I'm writing, like when I wrote the first three themes of The Nevers, I grabbed a pad of paper and a pencil and waited until my daughter was you know, safely off to school and sat down and, and you know, four or five hours at the piano and, and write. Um, and anything that, that requires sort of a big traditional theme. I do like starting in the family room on the piano. Uh, we did build a, a real state-of-the-art studio, which I'm very proud of. It has all the computers and all the technology that the music business has evolved into. And film composers, because we live and die by the demo, our demo has to be of high enough quality to go basically on a preview screening, you know, when you have those preview screenings where you're showing an audience a rough cut, our demos have to be that quality. So it takes some pretty serious technology to do that, but we've done that, invested in that. So yes, the studio has pretty much anything a composer needs to do that. I can also mix here in surround sound, and we've got a mix room in surround sound. Because, you know, a project like Once Upon a Time, there's so much happening, it's easier just to do it all in one space and to have the all of the work 
come to you, as it were, rather than having to spend more time driving around town to different places to use different facilities. It's uh, much better to bring it all and do it all here. Don't write that much on the trumpet, Lee, I must admit. <laughs> I used to keep one right by the... I still do. It's, it's actually sitting right over there. But, um, yeah, the trumpet is, is one of those sort of almost guilty pleasures now. I, I love it so much, and yet it's like... It's like ballet dancing. I think if you stop for a week, you're sort of screwed. <laughs> the body just says, I don't remember how to do that. <laughs> so I, for me to do any serious trumpet playing, I, I sort of have to write up a schedule and, and start practicing a couple of hours every day and, and get back into it. Gotcha. Yeah, it must be, must be fairly demanding on the lips. The lips, the, the lungs, yeah. It, yeah. It's, the, the trumpet is one of those things that demands things of the body the body's not really designed to do, and so you have to train it <laughs> and coerce it into doing these things. <laughs> gotcha. I'd like to play a track from the album that you and Kate made, which is called Bittersweet. It's one of my favourite records. She's made 28 records, yeah. and I know you've made a lot. It's, yeah. it's probably the album I play well, it's up there with one or two others as the albums I play the most of hers. I'd like to play the first track off that, My One and Only Love. Well, that's fantastic because, you know, when I first met Kate, her her talent is just <laughs> pouring out of her. And, and it was such a delight to get to know her and such such an honor to be able to have played and recorded music with her. And one of the, we've sort of connected in two areas, one of which was standards. And so it was sort of a natural thing for the first recording project to try together was, was to do an album of standards. And that's, that's what you're referring to here. That's uh, also one of my favorite records. Beautiful. Here we go. The very thought of you makes my heart sing like a name. April breeze on the wings of spring, and you appear in all your splendor. My one and only love. Fall and spread the mystic charms in the hush of night when I'm in your arms. I feel your lips so warm and tender. My one and all. Thank you. 
you in a good mood, doesn't it? Certainly does. <laughs> some of the other cool things uh, you and Kate did when we were there, you collaborated on some um, really interesting original music as well. And you guys, you know, you did some gigs, you opened the Sundance Film Festival and a big street concert and uh, a bunch of other gigs. I really love that stuff with you just sort of floating around like surfing on your horn and Kate kind of wailing like a banshee and you sort of putting, you know, looping your horn and then a guy on drums doing some really kind of cool percussive stuff made for a really uh, interesting mix. Are you still doing that sort of stuff? You know, it's it's something I still flirt with and um, and the idea of a female voice is still really something that I love doing and since... You guys are no longer here. I've, I did something with Carolyn Polachek that we experimented with. I've done some stuff with Holly Palmer. So, yes, I am still interested. I have yet to sort of be able to codify it into solve that marketing problem that we discussed earlier. You know, where does this fit in the world? And I like to think that I'm maybe a little closer now. And I've done a fair number of tracks. and I'm working towards an album, actually. But it's difficult because you, if you take sort of the EDM world, like the electronica world, and you put a trumpet into it, what does that become? You know, a lot of people will say, well, that makes it immediately a jazz album. But then it doesn't have to. There, there's a DJ out there called, uh, I think he's Australian, actually, Tommy Trumpet. I see, Timmy Trumpet. Anyway, he, and he plays trumpet and he's an EDM DJ. So there are ways to cross this over and I just have to figure out the best way to present my version of that. Yeah, cool. You know, talking the percussive element, one of the things I like most about your scores is your ability to, I guess, combine sound design. Do you call it that as a film composer or do you just call it, you know, percussive elements? Well, I guess it, part of it can be considered sound design. I mean, there is a sound design department in most films, but that can incorporate even down into the Foley and, and this and sound effects and everything. So there, it is a bit of a gray area, but it it's gray enough that I always make a point of learning who is in charge of that on a film so we don't 
step on each other's toes because yes, the music can get very percussive and very aggressive and very noisy and some sound design can get very musical. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that the two departments aren't competing or doing things that are going to uh, clash and make a, make a problem for a, a project. But it's definitely a world that I love and uh, I do a lot of programming of sounds and, and weirdnesses and uh, I just happen to think of it as music. <laughs> Well, I think that's clearly what works for you because it's not like, oh, well, that's the sound design department. <laughs> like you integrate the sound design into your themes and into your other musical components and that's kind of one of your great strengths. Yeah, it's something that that uh, that I've worked on a lot and learned very early on to just to uh, work collaboratively in the film industry with these with these guys and also learn from them. I've, I've called them up several times and said, you've got this sound when, when he comes around the corner and sees the car blowing up. What is that? I want to be able to do that. <laughs> so it's, it's fun. It's good fun. Yeah, fantastic. Another thing you seem to really specialize at is the big sport movie. It's like, holy shit, how good is the film Warrior? Well, that's one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah, and, and Gavin Gavin O'Connor, the director, is is very... We started off doing Miracle together, which is a wonderful, wonderful sports movie. And on to Warrior, and I've done quite a number of others. 42, the Jackie Robinson story. I mean, there is, for someone who never played sports in their whole life, I somehow have drawn to those... Help telling the stories of those moments, you know, when, when the human will and human spirit triumphs. Yeah, incredible. Is that something that drives you? Like, I guess, a purpose of your own that you've tapped into is sort of celebrating the strength of the human spirit? I think so. I think that uh, it's it's the most, it's one of the strongest things we can observe about life, I think, around us. When you see a whole society come together, I mean, it's the, it's the only upside to this pandemic, quite honestly, is when you see a society come together and push through and help each other and move towards a goal of, of bettering things. This is what makes life, this is what makes life. This is life. This is the reason to be alive. This is, <laughs> and storytelling that I think communicates that is uplifting and inspiring to, to help be a part of those moments in your own life. So I think that's why I'm drawn to them uh, in life and to help tell the stories of them. Yeah, that's cool. A genre that isn't that far away from the sporting film is the the war film. You seem to specialize in that as well. Tell us about, you know, that and I guess why that's the case and how you approach a war film. Is it the same way you approach a sporting film? Well, it is if it has that triumph. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not all wars have those moments. I mean, I think it's the beautiful thing about sports because you're experiencing the drama of conflict and the drama of, you know, I fight but people aren't going to die. And you can have all the feeling of the triumph and the feeling of the camaraderie and the feeling of a group coming together to win against great odds, but you don't have to put your home and your children's lives on the line. Now, war becomes different because you're actually, innocent factors are being threatened in war. And therefore, I don't know if war films will ever quite have that same innocence <laughs> that a great sports movie will have. There's an innocence about a sports movie. It's it's it is Sunday afternoon. <laughs> you know? Now to that quarterback that's being killed and has to get the ball released, it's not just a Sunday afternoon. But to those of us experiencing it, it is. 
But if we're pulled out and, and thrown into having to go to war, it, it's different. And I think it's much more complex. Um, I wrote the theme for the American Army, believe it or not, that they used for almost a decade. And I did a uh, concert with them once where I went and conducted it with the Army Band. And we did a, you know, a chat with the audience before the concert. And I realized in talking that, yes, I've scored a lot of enactments of victory and heroism. But this theme actually was written and presented to men and women who are doing this in real life. <laughs> and I must admit, I, uh, in listening back, I said, well, I actually did a pretty good job. They liked it enough to, to use it for 10 years as the piece of music that the army rallied behind. And it's, I felt a sense of responsibility in that because it is, there's a much greater responsibility and risk and everything in the area of war than there is in in, in anything else, really. Yeah. You've had, you know, extraordinary successes along the way. No doubt there's been some low points as well, some gigs you, <laughs> you know, you didn't win and we heard about the um, your first record. Any tips as to how you've got through those times where everything's gone to shit or you, you can't think <laughs> of how to approach a film or, you know? Well, you know, strangely enough, the lowest points that register with me are our trumpet player moments where the body gave out. You know, and because as I as I mentioned, it's it's like an athlete to be a, a good trumpet player. You have to be in shape, and you know when a quarterback, if their arm gets thrown out in the fourth quarter, <laughs> usually there's a backup. Now, at a band, if the trumpet player loses his chops in the fourth quarter, I don't know if there's a trumpet player standing in the kitchen waiting to go on. So, <laughs> usually you have to get through that gig somehow, and those are the hardest for me. You know, writer's block, I used to get it occasionally, and then I realized, I came up with a sort of a little analogy that the writing process is sort of, there's two personalities here. There's the gurgitator, I call them, which is just the person that's sitting there just throwing out ideas, right? It's just coming out, ideas, ideas, ideas. But right here, there's the editor. <laughs> the editor is the person that says, nah, that's shit. Nah, nobody will hear that. that that's, that's terrible. And if you let the editor give him too much control then it's just nothing comes out right and that's writer's block so you just got to shut the editor up you just gotta say you know go have a beer in the next room or something you know? and so i would come up with little tricks of just writing anything it didn't matter it would be shit but it would be something and you get the flow going because you have to just be able to outflow out of whatever this is creative universe whatever that is whether you think it's your mind or your spirit or it doesn't matter. It, it's there, and it's wh where these ideas come from, <laughs> and they have to come out into the physical universe. And whatever technique you can get them into the physical universe, productively, efficiently, and with quality, that's the technique for you. <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Hey, you've worked with an, an astonishing array of the greatest directors to, you know, graced the planet for the last 40 or 50 years. Robert Redford, the list goes on. I'm not going to rattle them all off because I probably did in the intro. But, um, <laughs> tell us about, um, you know, William Friedkin, Jodie Foster. Tell us about some of the great directors you worked with and perhaps a few things you learned from them along the way. Well, I do think of Redford first because he is one of our biggest movie stars and, and he's such an iconic figure. Um. To the point where my wife, who's, who's uh, as gregarious as yours is, um, 
when she opened the door to, when he came to the house for the first time, she opened the door and saw Robert Redford standing there. She was actually speechless. <laughs> and he put out his hand and he said, hi, I'm Bob. <laughs> uh, and that's, that sort of sums up who he is. He's just a very straightforward, simple, lovely, lovely guy. And with tremendous talent and tremendous insight into storytelling. And I think even as a director, he, he sees it from an actor's arc. So he'll see it all these sort of you know, arcs of different characters being woven across this period of time and how they intersect. And it gives him a great insight as to how things should move and where the temperament of the lighting and the, and the music and everything should be at certain points based on these different people that he, as an actor, can see how exactly how they're evolving through, the, through this storyline. So a lot of his direction would be, you know, at this point, you know, this is the middle for her, and, and, and she's not this way, she's this way. And it would just be fascinating to hear him talk because you, you could see that, that uh, he's an actor's director. He's an actor's actor and an actor's director and, and producer. He uh, sees it all very, very clearly and with great insight. Who else have I worked with? I mean, I've, I've worked with a tremendous... Jody is... Jody's maybe one of the smartest people I've ever met. <laughs> She's, I did a, a picture with her called Nell, and I did quite a number of pictures with her, but the Nell is the story I remember. We had this first session, and I wrote down all these adjectives of what she wanted the score to be, and I said, well, come back in about two weeks. I should have the first 15 minutes or so sketched out. And so she came back, and she said, no, this, is, this, is, this isn't quite right. I, I, I wanted this to be this, and she said, and what I'm getting from you is this, 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 and this, and this. And I wanted this, 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 and this. I said, well, actually, Jody, I have my notes from our last meeting. What you just said this is, is exactly what you told me you wanted, and you didn't say those other adjectives. And she said, really? I said, yeah. And she said, then I was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so she said, you've done what I've said, and I don't like it. I don't think it's right. So let's start again. I apologize. Or, it, she didn't even say I apologize. It's just part of the process. It's just, I was wow. wrong. I was wrong. Let's start again. This is the way I, I, I feel it should be, and, and so let's just go back through it, and I'll discuss it some more, and we can talk about it some more. And I, so I said, all right, give me another two weeks. <laughs> and then it went, it went totally smooth from there. Just the ability in a split second to say, I was wrong. You know, let's, let's do it another way. And that's the sign of, I think, a very, very intelligent person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You touched on you've done a bunch of films with her. You've done a bunch of films with Robert Redford. I mean, really, the I guess in any business, the key to success is repeat business. And a lot of these huge directors, they just keep coming back for more and more. Mate, you must be doing something right. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what it is? I, th I er learned early on. Because I wouldn't have gotten my first film score done if it hadn't been collaborating with the director. If he hadn't talked me through every bar of that first score and showed me why it should be the way he wanted it and not the way I had given it to him. I mean, and repetitively, I mean, for over four months to get 40 minutes of music done. It became very apparent to me, and then observing, it's a, it's a collaborative business, you know. Everyone has input. A good picture editor is a huge influence on a picture, you know, as is any of the actors or any of the set designers or anything. But in post-production, the picture editors is, is, 
a huge part of the equation. And, and you better be really understand what they're thinking and where they're taking the story because that's where the story is going to go. <laughs> you know? And so be aware of all these relationships. Be aware that when this producer comes in and he doesn't see the money shot, you know, the shot that he knows his audience really wants to see, that that's going to be his concern. And just know everybody's concerns and why and, and be able to react and to give what is needed and wanted to make the whole community thrive and do the best job everyone can to get the best picture we can. And when picture works well, that community is well run by a good director, the captaining of the ship, then you get a good product. And if there's bad captaining or if there's subterfuge <laughs> in the middle of the team, then chances are it's just not going to work out so well. And just be aware yeah. that if you see that happening, that, that it's happening, you know, that there's a uh, mutiny aboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have noticed that there's quite a few big projects where they've brought you in to collaborate with another less experienced composer. You're kind of seems to be the go-to guy for those tricky projects. So clearly you are a great collaborator. I do. I mean, I, I've learned that the ability to listen to people and duplicate what they say and to then duplicate what they want and then to be able to deliver that is, is a big skill. And not necessarily a skill that, that people naturally have, a skill that perhaps needs to be developed. I've certainly not kept in my employ or fired people who don't have that skill, in some measure at least, because if someone can't say, I want a G-sharp chord there and put the B at the top of the chord, and it comes back with a G chord with a C on the top of the chord, then I, I don't have the time to work with somebody who can't just understand what you're saying and duplicate it. And yeah. the same goes for people hiring me. There's no reason they should waste their time with me unless I can really duplicate what they want and, and be able to deliver it. And, of course, as an artist, bring your own artistry and quality of, uh, of work and communication. Bring that to bear as well. Yeah. Totally got it, mate. Hey, um, I've been with you in the studio. I think we're at the Paramount Film composing studio one time I kind of went in there with you and watched you with an orchestra presenting your new works and having an orchestra bring it to life I mean what a thrilling thing that is and do you still get nervous yes <laughs> I've been doing it now for oh god oh my goodness Leah is it over is it I started in 35 years. So, yes, I still get nervous. We just did The Nevers, the most recent orchestral project. We did it remotely due to COVID and budget <laughs> with a wonderful orchestra in Budapest. Uh, but I'm still nervous. I'm sitting here hooked up to them electronically, watching them on the screen, listening to them, and, and still wondering if what I've written is going to sound halfway decent and can it be played well and <laughs> will they like it enough to play it well? <laughs> Hey, one of the really influential scores you composed was for the film Blade, which starred Wesley Snipes back in the day. Talk us through that, because I remember the first time I saw that film, that music was a revelation, mm. and I think it's been mimicked and inspired many other scores along the way. Did you, uh, did you know you were on to something with that? Well, that was the first time that it's, I was working with a music supervisor who had very specific instructions as to what the other music other than score in the film was because the director had very esoteric tastes um, and it happened to be stuff that I was really interested in. He was, loved all this drum and bass stuff and um, uh, Aphex Twin and all this, this great stuff from, 
from back in that time. And so I loved overlaying the orchestra and putting some of those influences into the score and overlaying the orchestra on some of those tracks. And I'm, I'm glad it had that effect on you because, yes, I was very, uh, a, little, a little nervous <laughs> at the time that what I was doing. Uh, again, not really knowing if I knew what I was doing, but just sort of running by the seat of my pants and just trying to get stuff to sound cool, you know, and getting the orchestra yeah. to sound cool <laughs> and overdubbing, <laughs> overdubbing a lot of sort of strange stuff within the orchestra and uh, just as you say, to bring a bit of that sound design aspect into a traditional score, you know. And, yeah. you know, that gets done fairly rigorously these days in general. But this was, how old is that movie? 10, 15 years old? Oh, so, I 20. Could be, yeah. So it, it wasn't that widely done in those days. It was still being experimented by a few of us, you know, to throw yeah. that much stuff all in one big pot and stir it up and see what happened, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot less of the the big traditional melody type theme, like the Star Wars theme and that sort of John Williams stuff. Obviously, his stuff is extraordinary. There is less of that. Do you wish there was more of that, or do you love that it's sort of I don't know the playing fields become, you know, there's so many different combinations of genres now. If you can't just rattle off the the handful of genres, because there's so many hybrids, isn't there? Well, there is. Um... I think a number of years ago, I was getting requests and, you know, take that melody out. You know, there's too much melody. And that was a bit disheartening. But that was really, again, just inability at that point for the director and I to really understand what they were looking for. If they wanted more of an ambient textural score, then eventually that's what the discussion we ended up having to have. I just had to say point blank, I'm assuming you really don't want anything with traditional melody and themes in it here, that if we have any theme, it's a single note or a single sound, and you want sort of a motival, ambient, textural score. And I remember him saying, yeah, that's it, you know, and he'd never sort of thought of those words or how to express that, you know. All he knew was that when I wrote an eight-note melody, it was too much for him, (laughs) you know. And that seemed to be the, the way things went for a while. I think we're sort of getting back to a balance now. There are certainly fantastic ambient scores like that score to Chernobyl is amazing but that's ambient texture but just so imaginative and so wonderfully designed but you still have you know you still have great thematic moments and and scores and and I I still think that that will never go away there's certain types of stories that will always benefit from that type of scoring yeah that's cool Hey, um, you've worked with quite a few Aussies as well. Um, <laughs> Scott Hicks. Scott Hicks. Gillian Armstrong on Mrs. Soffel, which starred Mel Gibson. Yeah. Tell us briefly about those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gillian, I think, was my second film, third film. I'd done, done Never Cry Wolf, and then I'd done this, this uh, documentary, little tiny documentary. And then I was sort of sitting around unemployed, and my agent said, yeah, there's this Australian director who wants to meet you. And so we met, and we got along, and, and then he said, she wants to hire you. And I, me- I remember the first, I'm going to have to try to remember the exact phrase she used. It wasn't an insult, but I couldn't quite figure out what, she hired me because I was not like, a, like an American composer at all. <laughs> and I guess she met some big time American composers like John Barry or John Williams or something I know who were and rightfully so they they are who they are they have big beingnesses they're they're you know they sit there and 
who knows? I, I was just this guy. At that point, I was just this guy who had done one film that had done okay, and I and I still lived in this one bedroom <laughs> flat, you know. And, uh, and she liked that. She liked the fact that I was still the indie artist, I guess, is really the way you would describe it. Because she thinks of herself as an indie artist, and her whole crew is an indie artist. And, you know, I guess the Australian, I, I don't have any firsthand experience working in Australia. But anyway, that, that's why she liked me. And we got along really well. And, uh, yeah. And then Scott, Scott we met because he did an a Oreo commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and and I did the Oreo commercial, and and I I got the commercial and I said, you know, this is really beautiful. Who shot this? Scott Hicks. Oh, fuck me, Scott Hicks <laughs> shot this. I said, give me his email. I have I, I've never met him. I love his work. I have <laughs> and so we sort of knew that we had each worked on this commercial, and then when he needed a, an American composer, he called me, and it and it was great. I love Scott. He's one of my all-time favorite directors. I'm, in fact, he's invited me to come to the Adelaide Film Festival the next time it runs, and I so I, I'm planning on being there. Wonderful. Yeah, Shine's an extraordinary film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, mate, I noticed on IMDb you've got a couple of acting credits there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Zeus, Zeus on keyboards in uh, Made in Heaven. Mate, I mean, what a highlight of your illustrious career. Yeah, the camera pans right past me, and, and, and you can actually tell it's me. <laughs> I have one scene with Tim Hutton where he's, I'm playing trumpet, and he's playing piano, I think. Yeah, anyway, a strange little <laughs> film. <laughs> we'll move on from the acting, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so um, influences or films, what's a film score you wish you'd written? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, funny, the flash answer that I had right there was Blade Runner. I love those types of films. And there's a hint of that in The Nevers, you know, even though it's a period piece. But there's a hint of that. But that sort of just epic science fiction sort of film uh, I love. And I, and I actually have never really had a chance to do it. So I'm still sort of waiting for that film to come along. Okay, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that's Vangelis, isn't it, Blade Runner? It, it is Vangelis, yeah. It's, yeah, definitely one of the greatest of all time. What about Morricone and others? Are they influences? Yeah, I, I love Morricone, like the score to uh, Untouchables. Yeah. is brilliant. Once Upon a Time in America. I've listened to those scores quite a bit. I love Elliot Goldenthal. His score to the Alien 3, I think it is. You know, he's sort of the real deal. He's the guy that studied with Aaron Copeland and was a real composer. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because I can hear that in his film scoring. You know, I can hear that he's, there's a lot of knowledge in what he does. And I, I admire that and respect that tremendously. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of Tom Newman. Uh, and, of course, John Williams. You, you go back and listen to John every so often just to, oh, that's how it's done. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the young, I'm, I'm going to, I'm terrible I, with names, but the young woman that did Chernobyl. And uh, there's some younger composers right now who are just fantastic and with really fresh approaches, and I'm really, I admire a lot of that stuff. Mate, um, about to wrap up, anything else exciting coming up? Well, let's see. We're finishing up the Godfather of Harlem season. Um, we're going to be diving into the next part of The Nevers. Uh, I've got a uh, Liam Neeson film that I'm about to start. And for me, the most exciting thing, I think, is this, this record that I keep pushing myself to get done. So... <laughs> 
COVID gave me a really good push, and I got a good way into it. And then I started working again. I've been working my ass off ever since, so it's it's just a matter of scheduling the time. Cool, mate. All right, well, I'll look out for those. And, um, mate, thank you for the music. Well, you're very, very welcome. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Seeing your, your wonderful face there, I don't know how long it's been since it's been in person, but we'll have to change that soon. Yeah, too long. All right, mate. Well, lots of love to the family and, yeah, hopefully see you all on the ranch sometime soon. That would be great. Lots of love to you and Kate. I could talk to guys like Mark all day, given the opportunity. It takes great restraint to wind things up after an hour, I can tell you. I hope you enjoyed it too. For all things Mark, head to his website, isham.com. That's I-S-H-A-M.com. To watch the HBO series, The Nevers, head to Binge or Foxtel in Australia. Godfather of Harlem is on Stan. Highly recommend it. The jazz album, Bittersweet, by Mark and Kate Sobrano, is available on your usual music platforms. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't want to miss an episode. And if you feel like rating and reviewing this episode or the series, head to Apple Podcasts or whatever your platform is and go for it. Another legendary creator will be my guest next week, but until then, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.